Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall uh, run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study, let's make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're indeed grateful that we have this privilege and opportunity to gather together to study your word. We thank you for this nation. We thank you for the freedom that we have. We thank you for those who are willing to serve in our armed forces and other security agencies. We pray that you'd give them wisdom and skill as they seek to protect this nation and that the right information would be discovered, that we might be uh, protected and our borders remain secure. Father, we pray for us as believers that we might keep our focus on what really matters in life, and that's our own spiritual life, our knowledge of doctrine, our application of your word, and the evidentiary value of our own spiritual life in the angelic conflict. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we study tonight, that we might make these a part of our thinking, part of our life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Tonight we come to a rather interesting episode in the life of Abraham in Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16. And as I have pointed out in previous studies to the point that you uh, are probably sick of hearing it, Abraham's life is, and the story of Abraham's life is developed along the lines of several tests. When we think of Abraham, we need to think of the Abrahamic covenant. We need to think in terms of God's election of Israel, and it's a picture of God's election and selection in human history. We need to recognize that uh, Abraham is used in the New Testament as a picture of justification, salvation, phase one justification, salvation. And Abraham is also a picture of the mature believer who... Uh, reaches spiritual maturity and his faith is demonstrated or validated uh, before mankind and the angels according to James chapter 2, uh, 14 to 21. And in that passage, it's not talking about phase 1, but phase 2 and his maturity. Hebrews 11 talks about how Abram moved from phase 1 justification to spiritual maturity and that was his walk by means of faith, his walk by means of faith, and his advance from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity was step by step as he went through these various tests. The first test was his call to leave Ur the Chaldees, 
to leave his family behind, which he didn't do, but he did leave. The second test had to do with uh, staying in the land and trusting God. At the root of every test that you face in life, get this down, at the root of every test in life, it's a faith rest drill. That is why the faith rest drill comes in terms of spiritual skills right after learning to walk by means of the Spirit. They are almost two sides of the same coin. The first thing we learn in the spiritual life is to confess sin so that we can recover from sin and recover the filling of the Holy Spirit. The next spiritual skill we develop is walking by the Spirit. The means of walking by the Spirit is the third step, which is the faith rest drill, which we'll discuss a little bit this evening. Everything else is built on that. That's your foundation. And so Abram's, of course, faith gets tested. He fails to trust God, fails to apply doctrine, uh, goes, out to, goes down to Egypt. And I pointed out when he, and there that it was while he was in Egypt that he picked up a, an Egyptian slave girl by the name of Hagar. And that's what we get introduced to in Genesis 16. Not Hagar the horrible, though the uh, consequences of Hagar are horrible down through history even to the present time. So what we, the principle we learn from that is that when we're out of fellowship and we're not trusting God, we end up making other decisions that aren't related to the primary failure, but because we're out of fellowship, not trusting God, we make other decisions that carry with them unintended consequences that frequently come back to uh, kick us in the rear later on down the road, and that's what happened there. The third test Abram faced was in chapter 13 after returning back to the land, indicating he's back in fellowship, trusting God, and now God uh, causes the land to not produce enough to take care of Abram and his flocks and his herds and his servants and as well as Lot. So Abram demonstrated grace orientation and generosity passes the test, gives Lot the pick of the land. Lot takes the most beautiful part of the land, which is the area now known as the Dead Sea. But at that time, it was well watered like the Garden of Eden. And so he demonstrated his, uh, his own avarice and his own lust. And he goes down to Sodom and Gomorrah. Of course, this is about 25 years before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Then we have another test. The fourth test in chapter 14. And in the fourth test, uh, the land is invaded, and so Abram now has to function in relation to the blessing mandate of Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. And so he goes out to protect and to defend and to rescue. And the point of the whole of that whole test is to set him up for the next test. Isn't it interesting how one test sort of develops into the next? As we pass one, it just opens the door into the next. And the next had to do with his response to God's grace in giving him victory over the invading army. And he passes that test as well, and he gives generously from his uh, spoils to Melchizedek, and that is a sign of his gratitude toward God. Then there's another test in chapter 15. After his victory, he succumbs to worry, fear, concern, and God comes to him and says in chapter 15, don't be afraid, and God reiterates the land promise at that time. And so Abram trusts God. 
and then we have a continuation of the narrative in 16, verse 1, where we read, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And the point of the text is to remind us of uh, where the narrative has been going since the beginning of chapter 15. Now remember, is the idea there's a break in the action. It's a disjunctive vav at the beginning of that verse, indicating a break in the narrative. And we're being reminded that Sarai, his wife, was still barren. She had not had any children. Now, why is this an issue? Of course, one reason it's an issue is the immediate circumstance with Abram. God had promised descendants. He promised a multitude of descendants that would be innumerable, like the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea. However, there is something even uh, more uh, troubling at this time. You see, Abram still operates within a biblical worldview in relationship to children. In the West, Western, in American society, in Western Europe, we've picked up a lot of pagan thoughts about having children. We don't want to have too many children. Ever since Malthus published his studies about overpopulation in the late 18th century, American civilization has has constantly bought into the lie related to overpopulation. So we've seen families reduce in size. Now, I also recognize there's other pressures, but it's a, it's a systemic thing. Not only are, are, are there pressures from, from human viewpoint rationale, but then we have pressures due to finances and living space, and all these things come together. But the picture in Scripture is it is a wonderful and glorious thing to have numerous children. Blessed is the man who has, uh, has children and his quiver is full of them, the psalmist says. And the idea there is using arrows as a picture of a warrior who influences and wins the battle because of the, the, the amount of ammunition that he has. So if you want to be well stocked with ammo in terms of the angelic conflict, then you have children and you train up those children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and then they go out and they in turn have their impact on society. This is just the opposite of the, um, of the mentality of America that's producing more and more uh, dinks, you know, double incomes, no kids. And couples that where the wife and the husband uh, have adopted the mentality that real success in life has to do with what happens in the career, what happens in the workplace, and not what happens in the family. But the biblical viewpoint is that real success in life is measured more by what happens in the family and in the production of the next generation and its influence through the Word of God and by the Word of God, then what happens at the workplace. And so that's all part of what I mentioned the other night in terms of the assaults against uh, biblical Christianity in our culture is that constant assault of materialism. And I don't just mean people who have a, have a lust for things and overcharge their credit accounts and get extended in debt and those sorts of things. I'm talking about the fact that we tend to express our values more and more in terms of material uh, quantification. 
so that success in life is measured by uh, status. It's measured by where you go on the career rung. It's measured by how many degrees uh, one has along the way, by education, by all of these overt symbols that are ultimately translated into where, where ultimate meaning in life is determined by uh, the material world and material success as opposed to uh, spiritual, uh, spiritual values and the impact one has uh, spiritually. That's not to denigrate the importance of money, the importance of success. Uh, if you do a study through church history, you discover that, that uh, missions, movements, uh, solid seminaries, churches are all built on dollars. I mean, that's just a reality of life. We all have to pay the bills. And that happens as time goes by. And God raises up numerous men and He blesses them and they are successful financially. They build tremendous corporations. In fact, I first, I just learned that, uh, I forget his first name now, but Kraft, for whom Kraft Foods was named, was a strong, solid, uh, fundamentalist in the, and, and used a lot of his financial strength in the 30s to support uh, causes that uh, from fundamentalists, and I'm using that in its better term. Don't buy into the fact that it's a pejorative concept. It was the fundamentalists that supported Dallas Seminary, Moody Bible Institute, Philadelphia College of the Bible, uh, the Bible Institute of Los Angeles, now known as Biola. Many of these schools, of course, are, are drifting in some areas of their theology, but they were the backbone of this nation in the 30s and the 40s. And it's men like that who had a vision for it and used their finances in that way. But you see, the material gain was always a means to an end in the spiritual dimension. And so what happens in, as part of the pagan influence in our culture, in Western civilization, is to uh, denigrate children, denigrate the importance of having children, the role of raising children as a result of radical feminism in the 1960s. You have this, this pressure for women to do something that really matters. You know, you don't want to be just a cookie baker and a homemaker. You've got to do something that matters. What's your job? And uh, I think Hillary Clinton made a faux pas related to that back in the, back in the 90s. You see, that represents paganism, whereas the Word of God says there's nothing more significant in life other than being a pastor teacher than being a good mother and devoting yourself to training, raising those children for the next generation. And so that's the backdrop here when we come to study the doctrine of the barren woman in the Old Testament. There are only... Uh, six barren women in the New Testament, and when they are barren, it is a major crisis in their life. And today, many women would say, well, that's just fine. Now I can devote myself to my career. What's the big deal? Well, it's a major deal, especially if you understood that you could be in the line that, of the seed that was the promised Messiah. And that was part of it. But they also understood that God designed men for one role and one arena of activity in life. And He designed women for another role and another arena in life. And that their primary role and primary arena was to be a helper and assistant to the husband and to 
raise the children and to provide the training for that next generation so that they work together as a team. And if the woman did not have children, then she could not fulfill that God-given role that was established before sin ever darkened creation. So it was an extremely serious matter in the ancient world for a woman who could not or did not have children. It was a major stigma. Furthermore, it had social consequences and immediate legal consequences because it left the family without an heir, no one to pass the property onto. So it was a major calamity. And so the way the pagan world operated, see, they still, they were borrowing all kinds of ideas from Christianity because remember, they had, they were pretty close to a, uh, to the Noahic, uh, flood and the Noahic covenant. And even though they may not be believers, there's still this residual cultural memory that God told them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so there is this, they, they may have distorted and perverted the, the mandate, but there's still this residual understanding that it's important to propagate the race and have children and to go forward. So when they failed, when there was barrenness in the wife, the solution was polygamy. That's how polygamy developed. The woman can't have children, the wife can't have children, so let's go get a second wife so that we can have an heir that we can pass the property on to. And in the in uh, the Middle East or the ancient Near East, this became a standard practice. Polygamy was not God's original intent. His original intent, as Jesus stipulates in Matthew chapter 19, is one man and one woman, a monogamous relationship and not a uh, polygamous relationship. And, of course, that's a big issue today because once you redefine marriage and it's no longer one man and one woman, if it can be one man and one man or one woman and one woman, why can't it be two women and one man or two men and one woman? Once you break, break it down, you have to stick with the biblical definition of marriage. So everywhere you go in the Old Testament, polygamy is never pictured in a positive way. Probably the most, uh, uh, the, the one illustration, the one event that pictures it in its most negative is what happens here in chapter 16. You know, it's always a funny thing. Every now and then, some really bizarre things come across your desk as a pastor. Now, we all know that out there in Utah and portions of northern Arizona, there are some strange folks who, who still try to practice polygamy. This was a major plank in Mormonism, is a return to polygamy. But that's because Joseph Smith was a sexual pervert, and so was Brigham Young. And if you think I'm being harsh, just go read the original literature. Uh, Joseph Smith, as a sign of, as an indication of the loyalty of his elders, he made all of his elders give them their wives so that he could sleep with them as a sign of their loyalty to him. And what you discover is that whenever you have some major cultic leader and he's developing his scripture or whatever they are, it always tends to uh, uh, ameliorate the weaknesses of his own sin nature. So you have uh, polygamy as a major plank in Mormon thought. And in order to uh, keep the women down and in order to 
force them to go along with this. In the uh, Book of Mormon, it's clear that women can't get into heaven unless the husband invites them to invites her to join him in the resurrection. How do you like that, ladies? If you're a Mormon, you can't get resurrected to heaven or eternity or the next life unless after your husband is resurrected, he looks around and says, you know, she's a pretty good wife. I want her to come with me and then we'll go have sex forever and populate a new earth. That is also part of Mormonism. I mean, it's just a, just a perversion. But there's a lot of folks out there still who try to practice polygamy. And every now and then... I get information from a, uh, some individu- a individual who has been on my tapes and a number of other tapes and been involved with the doctoral movement for a while. In fact, he, he just sent uh, Pastor Hastings' his website. It's him and his two wives. It's a strange world out there. Here's a guy who's been listening to doctrine for years, and he's out there with his two wives. He's got a website promoting polygamy. So don't think that this is too far removed from modern society just because it's not in your little sheltered world. Polygamy has always been a characteristic of paganism and pagan thought. And that's how it entered into... People always go back to the, to the patriarchs and they say, well, they were polygamists. Well, some of them were, but what the, what the picture is is that they always did it as a result of pagan uh, pagan influence. And so one of the things that they would do that had been uh, picked up in the practice of the time was that if the, in the wealthy, especially in the, in the aristocracy and among the wealthy elite, if the wife could not have any children, then she would ha- take her personal servant. That's what we see with Hagar. She is the handmaid. She is not Abram's Servant, she is uh, Sarai's personal servant and handmaid. She is owned by Sarai, and uh, Sarai says, "Why don't you take her as your wife?" This and this surprises us, and we think it's kind of strange. But at that time, that was the standard operating procedure to handle the problem of barrenness. Now, barrenness, though, has a significance in the Scripture. It has a spiritual significance in the Scripture, not today, but in the Scripture and in the Old Testament because of certain things that God was teaching in the ancient world. So I want to review the doctrine of the barren woman. Point number one, the significance of barrenness is not some sin on the part of this woman, that is, Sarai or any of the others. There were certainly many other barren women in the Scripture in the Old Testament period that are not mentioned. So why these? Why these six? It's not because of some sin in their life. And one reason I like to mention this and teach this every now and then is there's always folks that are dealing with infertility. And for whatever reason, whether it's on the part of the man or the part of the wife, uh, a lot of times if women are not able to have children, they get caught up in this, this syndrome that they blame themselves and they think that this may have to do with God's judgment on them for some past sin or some past failure. And that wasn't even the case in the ancient world. Sarai is not barren because of some sin in her life. Uh, None of these women are 
are barren because of some sin in their life. It's because of something that God was teaching through their barrenness. Point number two. These are the women that are said to have been barren in Scripture. Sarai, the wife of Abram. Uh, Rebekah, who was the wife of his son Isaac. And Rachel, who's the wife of the grandson Jacob. Now, isn't that interesting? That the wives of the three patriarchs of Israel are all barren women. Now, that ought to be your first clue that there's something going on here related to God's development of the nation Israel. That the three matriarchs of Israel are all barren. What is God saying here? And then the next one that comes along in the order of the Old Testament is the mother of Samson. And then there's Hannah at the beginning of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 1. Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, in Luke 1. So that's uh, six. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, the mother of Samson, Hannah, and Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. So what in the world is going on here? Well, we get a little insight from Exodus 23:26. That is that the absence of barren women would indicate that Israel was... was spiritual. It indicated their positive spirituality and divine blessing. But the presence of barren women in Israel was to indicate Israel's carnality and divine judgment. This is the warning in Exodus 23-26. It was a sign. As part of the Mosaic Law, God's very physical and material. This is how you're going to know that you're following in my footsteps and that you're obedient to me is I'm going to bless you materially. There will be an abundance of crops. There won't be any hunger. There will be uh, physical, material, financial prosperity for everyone. But if you're disobedient to me and if the nation's in, in carnality, then there will be uh, there will be unfruitfulness. There will be cursing. There will be a lack of prosperity. There will be famine. There will be drought. And there will be, what? Barrenness. Women will not give birth. So it was a sign, uh, another sign of God's blessing or cursing on the nation. Exodus 23:26 says, There shall be, indicating uh, God's blessing on Israel, There shall be no one miscarrying or bearing barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. Now we just think this is kind of odd and kind of bizarre, but that's the framework to understand what's going on in the ancient world and to explain Sarah's mentality. She is in a major crisis. We might want to call it a midlife crisis, but she's way past midlife. And she's still having a major crisis. Her whole identity is caught up with this. Not only that, but God keeps telling them they're going to have a baby, and it doesn't happen that they're going to have an heir, and they have this hope. And so the pressure is mounting as each day goes by to somehow resolve the tension. And we know what that's like because we get that way in our own life. We start getting impatient with God's provision. Point number four. Thus we see that the barren womb in these women picture the emptiness. The barren womb pictures, should be a plural there. The barren womb pictures 
the emptiness and lifelessness of mankind apart from God and apart from Jesus Christ. The fact that they were barren was a picture of spiritual barrenness. It was also a picture of spiritual death. A picture of spiritual barrenness and a picture of spiritual death. What is it that distinguishes Abram from the culture around him? He's a Gentile from Ur of the Chaldees like everybody else, but he is a believer in the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, and he is regenerate. Now, he's going to have a couple of boys. He's going to have Ishmael. He's going to have Isaac. And what distinguishes Isaac and Jacob is regeneration. And God is illustrating this life from death in the wombs of the matriarchs of Israel. That that's what sets them apart. That the foundation of this nation and this people is miraculous. You have a 90-year-old woman who's going to give birth. Now, unfortunately, I don't have access to an obstetrician or gynecologist around here where I can get a detailed analysis of what takes place in the womb of an 80-year-old or 90-year-old woman. But I heard one teacher, Professor Dallas Seminary, one time, who had someone like that in his congregation who had given him a detailed response. And we don't even come close to appreciating the miracle that occurred for any of these women to have a baby. I mean, the elasticity of the tissues destroyed, the... uh, uh, it's dry, the, the uterus just virtually dries up. I mean, all of these things that you go into in and, 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 uh, post, post-menopause that has to be reversed. The elasticity of the skin uh, that's stretched out during a, a pregnancy as the uh, baby inside the womb grows. All of this is part of that miracle. It is not just a fact that she got pregnant. It's the fact that she's able to nourish and bring that child to, to uh, a nine-month maturity so she can give birth in all the different uh, biological systems that are involved in providing nourishment for that child inside the womb. So it is a picture of how God brings life where there's death or where there is no life. Fifth point, in each case... God miraculously brings forth life where there is death or there is no life. This is a picture of regeneration. And the point is that only God can solve the problem of spiritual death by spiritual birth. Only God can solve the problem of spiritual death by providing spiritual birth. This is the picture. And all of these six women are foreshadowing one individual. Who do you think they're foreshadowing? It's all a foreshadowing of the virgin birth, the virgin conception and virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what they all picture. So point six, the barren womb is a type of the virgin womb of Mary. And there the solution to the barren womb is the new life in the incarnation of the God-man the Lord Jesus Christ. So the problem of barrenness in the Old Testament is not a problem of personal sin in the life of the individual any more than it is today. It had to do with, in the Old Testament, with what was going on spiritually in the nation Israel. 
But, ju- but we live in a different dispensation today. We're not living in that dispensation. So when you have a situation where an individual is a woman is barren, she can't have children, she's infertile, whatever the cause is, then you just have to recognize that that's the providence of God and you just need to recognize that God, that's God's direction in your life and be thankful for it and look for fulfillment in other areas of your life as a woman, getting involved in ministry, uh, different areas of, of activity in lo- and local church, getting involved in teaching in prep school, different areas like that to give expression to the, your role as a woman in uh, the spiritual life. Situation in Genesis 16, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. Now, what we see set up in this chapter would be a tremendous play. If you can picture this as a drama being worked out on the stage, it it has all of the elements of a great soap opera. One thing I love about reading through the Old Testament and this is nothing compared to what's coming up, folks. I mean, you get into some of the stuff with Isaac and especially with Jacob and his boys towards the end of Genesis. And uh, it, it, it just it gets a little R-rated or X-rated. There is some bizarre stuff going on. And it's just a sign that God is describing these people as real people. And the sin nature, warts and all, it's tremendous evidence of the inspiration of the scripture that this isn't written to by men because if men were writing stories about their progenitors they would have a tendency to glorify everything that they did and of course we have examples of that where people uh, who have been famous in the founding of countries and and various legends grow up around uh, the, their lives and some uh, some have a kernel of truth other things don't but what happens here is you just see these people, warts and all, all their sin nature hanging out, and it's a recognition of God's grace. And that's what underlies this whole episode. Two things, actually. One is the failure on the part of Abram and Sarah to exercise the faith rest drill and the resulting consequences that reverberate on the evening news. The other thing that we see here is God's tremendous grace towards Hagar as she is caught up into the matrix of their carnality. God is going to deal with her in tremendous grace and blessing. Now, if we set this up like a drama, we have the introduction, the opening scene, giving us this reminder of Sarah's barrenness in verse 1. We're introduced to two of the, or all three of the characters actually. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. And so you begin to hear the background music. And you sense what's coming. You have Sarai, Abram, and the tension, there's no children. And then we get into scene one. The first scene starting in verse two down through verse six. And it goes back and forth between Sarah and then Abram. And then it comes back to Sarah again. 
and then uh, we have the response of Sarah and Hagar together. And so we'll work our way through this. Scene one, Sarah's solution. Sarah presents a solution. And if you uh, pay attention to what goes on in the narrative, you'll see an intentional parallel between what's going on in these verses and what took place in Genesis chapter 3 in the fall. And it's intentional. The writer uses some of the same words. He uses the same setup because he is showing that this is as much a fall for Abram as Adam's failure in the garden was a fall for mankind. So Sarah said to Abram, See, now the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. There's no sense of misplaced blame there. She recognizes legitimately that this is the Lord's providential direction in her life. She's not blaming him. But what's going on here is that God's prevented me from having children, but I'm going to come up with a solution. And that's what causes the real problem here. And we have to recognize in life that the human solution is a defective solution and is a self-destructive solution. There are only two solutions in life. There's the divine solution. And there is a human viewpoint solution. And even though you may say, may come up with 50 or 60 or 70 different options for a human viewpoint solution, there's still basically a human solution that man is depending upon himself to solve his problems. So we have Sarah's proposal here. She says, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. I've got my own solution to the problem. So Sarah tried to precipitate the will of God by seizing the initiative from God. It's the same thing that happens back in the garden. The serpent comes and puts this temptation before Eve. And what happens at that moment is Eve has to step back. She has competing truth claims. God says, if you eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. The serpent came along and said, that's not true. You're not going to die. Oh, so Eve has to sit back and say, oh, it's up to me to make a decision between these two. What has she done? She's put herself in the place of God. She's going to resolve the problem on her own. And what do we call that? We call that arrogance. And as soon as we get involved in arrogance and self-sufficiency... Instead of God dependency, everything starts breaking down rapidly. And arrogance always creates its own crisis, and it sets up an equal and opposite reaction on the other side that polarizes everybody. And that's what happens in this passage, is that she comes up with this solution. It's her solution. She's had a brainstorm. Just take Hagar Uh, She'll have a child, and as soon as Abraham goes in and has sex with Hagar, everything falls apart. She blames him. She blames God. She blames everybody but herself. And then as soon as the baby comes along, she has to run them out of the house, and there's just one problem after another, and we're still dealing with the polarization between the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of uh, Isaac to this day. 
And that's what happens in arrogance. And, and uh, you could go off on the whole scenario of what happened during the War of Northern Aggression in uh, 1860, because, uh, and I don't have near the time to cover that this morning, but that's what happened. In the North, there was a major theological shift that took place in the early part of the 19th century that was rejected by the theologians in the South, and that laid a foundation. And in the North, you had an arrogant attempt to solve man's problems man's way. A whole host of problems, not just slavery. And in the South, they, they reacted to the arrogance of the North, and you had polarization. You can go time after time after time in history and see how arrogance divides and creates this polarization, and the consequences reverberate for generations. And the only solution is to wait upon the Lord. And that's where we'll start next time. I'm going to stop now because of that traffic problem out there to give everybody the opportunity to uh, leave and try to get past that so you don't have to spend an hour waiting to go over the uh, bridge over I-10 with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, to be refreshed by it. We pray that you would challenge us with the things that we studied. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.